paid good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Guitar says he has an appointment with you. I'll see him later. There'll be plenty going on here soon. Tell me, why did you pick this spot to be? How could you possibly know that the railroad was coming this way? Some time ago, I ran into your surveyor and we exchanged confidences. Come on down, Vienna. Take a good look. We want the dancing kidneys, Bunch. You're one of them. Someone holds up the stagecoach. Your brother is killed, and all you can think about is hanging the dancing kid. You know he didn't do it. We're taking you and your men into custody. Eddie, you can stop spinning the wheel. We don't want you here. I saw the stage being held. What? Well, why didn't you ride down and help him? With what? This? <laughs> Listen good, because I'm only going to say this once. In 24 hours, I'm passing a law against gambling and drinking any place outside the town limits. You got no call asking us to leave. I'm not asking, I'm telling you. If you're smart, you'll ride out of here and you won't come back. That's what I should do. Mr. Guitar? Yes, ma'am? Still want the job? Fooling with a strange woman can bring a man a lot of grief. You a strange woman? Only to strangers. What's going on with you two? Stick to your dancing, kid. You'll live longer. Like the one they call Johnny Guitar. Down there, I sell whiskey and cards. All you can buy up these stairs is a bullet in the head. Play it again, Johnny Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. David Kittredge. Save yourself. Also back in the booth is Mr. Andras Jones. When you boil it all down, what does a man need? Just a smoke and a cup of coffee. Western Month continues with a look at Nicholas Ray's Johnny Guitar. Released in 1954, the film stars Sterling Hayden as the titular Mr. Guitar. However, he is outshone in the film by Joan Crawford as Vienna and Mercedes McCambridge as Emma, two women with a history. Actually, everybody's got a history in this movie. We'll definitely be talking about that, and we will be spoiling the film as we go along. So if you don't want anything ruined, just go ahead and turn off the show, watch the movie, and then come on back, y'all. We will still be here. So, Andras, when was the first time you saw Johnny Guitar, and what did you think? The first time I saw it must have been on some sort of afternoon TV. My mom would always have the the old movies on. During that time in the week, they would show on our local TV stations. But I'm sure I saw it more recently when I started to get into Nicholas Ray. 
And my reaction to this film is one I have to very few others. But what's the... I'm just blanking right now. What's the P.T. Anderson film with Joaquin Phoenix as the detective? Uh, Inherent Vice. Inherent Vice. I have had the same experience with that, where I get about one-third into the movie and I'm full. I get enough movie out of this in the first third. I get that with some David Lynch films and even some Kubrick films. I think I had that reaction with to Eyes Wide Shut, even though, I mean, it's different if you're in the theater, if you're in for the ride. But if you're watching it on some other device, some movies just give you so much at the beginning that you walk away stunned in the middle of the movie. <laughs> and this is that movie for me. And having, and that's why I love podcasting about movies is it gives you a reason to stay and stick it through and watch the whole thing. And, and I've watched it about four or five times this month. And there's so much to talk about in this film. It is so, it reveals so much in, in repeat viewings, especially the more you know about Nicholas, the history of everyone involved, really. The story of this film inside and out is just books could be written, should be written, maybe have been written. But yeah, that's my experience with Johnny Guitar. And David, how about yourself? I probably was looking to be a Nicholas Ray completist, if I had to guess, but it was several years ago. And I just remember being really thrown by it. If you're looking for a movie that's a Western, that's Joan Crawford, and I don't know who would look for a Western that's Joan Crawford, except for me and many of my friends, but it's it's a very unexpected film, I think is the best way to say it. The big takeaway from me was... It is a packed movie. I agree with Andres. It was not too much for me, though. I wanted more. I was a glutton for this technicolor-soaked, four-by-three, high melodrama. And anyone who is of my persuasion and a friend of Dorothy will appreciate the hell out of the wild, saturated perversity of this entire film. This film is dipped in testosterone and estrogen, and then run through a Technicolor optical printer. The film is at a 10, going on 11, going on 12, and that's only in the first 30 minutes. And one of the things I do want to talk about is the first act of this film, which is so crazily unconventional. It, for Just from a structural standpoint, one really needs to talk about it because it's nothing but seething standoffs. At any point in the first 30 minutes, it's all interior, it's almost all interior in that one location. It almost plays like a play, like 30 or 40 minutes, the first act of this entire film. And yet it's like these seething, everything's going to break into hysterical violence at any point. These, this tension. And of course, Joan Crawford is maximum Joan Crawford in this film. If you've ever thought of Joan Crawford as like kind of an icon, as you know, you, you have the idea of Faye Dunaway playing her in Mommy Dearest. This is that. This is entirely, you can just picture her off camera going home, demanding Tina get her the axe. Like any point in this movie, she is, everyone wants to fuck her. Everyone in this movie wants to fuck Joan Crawford. Now, you do have to swallow that. That is the gimme from this movie. You have to be like, Joan Crawford is like an insatiable sexual force in this movie and everyone needs to throw themselves at her but she can hold her own as she does over and over and over and over again in this movie somehow the damsel in distress and the protagonist and everything in between 
at any given point in this movie rapidly. Yes, if you're this is a great movie. You might have heard a lot of projection booth podcasts where like we're like going to I think my last one was a while ago it was like die laughing with Robbie Benson. It's just like, this we're not this is not one of those episodes. This is a movie <laughs> this is a movie genuinely great movie. You need to see it's up there with the canes and the verticos and the seven samurais and the eight and a half. It's in that league. And the fact that Nicholas Ray, the director, did this and Rebel Without a Cause in, what, two years or back-to-back? It's like, oh my god. There are these moments in cinema history where a director is on fire. This is that. This is that period. And this is that director. And as they say in Death of a Salesman, attention must be paid if you're a cinephile. The very first time I saw it, I was probably early to mid-20s, and it was too much for me. I couldn't handle it. It was just like... Like you both have been saying, like the first act is freaking nuts. Just how much stuff happens, how much we are being force fed of all of this information and how I mentioned before about, you know, oh yeah, he's a man from her past. Everything happened in the past. This movie feels like it is a sequel to something that we've never seen before, and they don't care. They're just like, oh, well, I had this relationship with this guy, and I and she had this relationship with this person. Da, 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 da. I'm like, what the hell's going on here? What did I just get dropped into? <laughs> it plays with so many of the Western conventions, even from the very beginning, where you get Sterling Hayden going across this landscape, and there's this huge explosion. You're like, what the hell's going on? Oh, it's the railroad. It's the encroachment of civilization, which plays a huge part to this. And then he goes along a little bit more on his horse, and he sees a stagecoach robbery. And I'm like, wait, are we in like 310 to Yuma? What's going on here? He doesn't do anything about it. So you're like, what kind of person is this? And then you realize once he gets into the bar, into Vienna Saloon, which I believe she owns 51% of that saloon. Don't fuck with me, fellas! This ain't my first time at the rodeo. They end up saying, oh, you don't have any guns on. You just carry this guitar. Okay. And you're like, what the hell's going on with this? What is happening with this Johnny Guitar character? And it's so unusual that it's called Johnny Guitar when really he takes a back seat to everybody. He is not, not the about him at all of this movie. No, no. He's, <laughs> he, I he's mean, like a plot he, device. He's acted upon. Yeah, he's acted upon. He's not an actor in this movie. I mean, he is Sterling Hayden, so he's freaking amazing. But yeah, this is so much Joan Crawford's. Oh, the voice in the Vienna. Movie. Come here. Oh God, it's so good in the cast of this movie. That is smoke, fantastic. Friend. I just love everybody that's in this, and you get the stuff that's going on at Vienna's saloon, which is also a uh, gambling establishment. And I love when he comes in, and you just have all the croupiers standing there. No one else. No one else is at this saloon. And how she comes out is just like, start spinning that wheel, Eddie. I want to hear that wheel spin. <laughs> and the wheel plays such an important part in this, especially as it is a tension device later on in the Spin film. the wheel, Eddie. When Sterling Hayden walks in, I feel like he is entering a David Lynch world. I can't, Everyone's all about David Lynch and Wizard of Oz. I'm watching this. I'm like, this has everything. This could be directed by David Lynch as a, a part of one episode of Twin Peaks. That lodge, obsession with the smoke and the coffee, the just the colors, the creepy silence and them just looking at him. It, I just, I feel like 
Lynchian inspiration seeping out of this at every turn, especially that first act. Like the odd musical nature, the stagey act, the overacting that all works. Just that opening, when he walks in, that's enough. Almost I need to stop the movie there and take a moment because it's so rich. And I was, and you're right, I was saying, as I was watching, I was like, everything in this movie is so sexy. It's just hungry, erotic energy pulsing through everything. And it's, but unless, maybe if you're a kid, it doesn't reach you so much because you don't have, the older and the more decrepit you are, the more receptors you have. I think you can feel it though. You can still feel it as a kid, right? And it's clear that David Lynch was super influenced by Ray's work and this film in particular. A lot of other filmmakers too. You can see shades of Hateful Eight in here. You can see a lot of stuff. Like a lot of movies rip this movie off or at least took great inspiration because it's so – and the sexuality is extremely – or is, of course, straight sexuality in here, very overt and very explicit, but it's – or explicitly expressed. But it's super queer. This movie is super queer and just runs that line of implication and, I don't know, subterranean, subcurrent queer energy. And a lot of that, of course, is Mercedes McCambridge and can only be described as one of the most full-throttle, double-barreled performances of any supporting character villain in history. If you have never seen a movie villain Mercedes McCambridge in this movie because she is just on another dimension. She is on another level. I don't even know what planet she's on. She does these evil things and it looks like she's having an orgasm when she's doing them. She is beyond David Lynch. She is beyond Paul Verhoeven. She is in this other realm of perverse, queer, evil, ecstasy, craziness. And yeah, they should bottle that. I would have a bottle of that. Wouldn't you have a bottle of Mercedes McCambridge in Johnny Guitar energy. Just take a little, go out on a Friday night, see how you fuck up your life. I don't know. I think that's pro- that probably is just what they use to make Vivance at this point. You know what? I'm sure it, it found its way in a lot of drugs and not all of them legal because she's on and she is somewhere else. She is flying high over this movie, somehow looking down on it at the same time. One of the things that to me is unavoidable about this film is its relation to the blacklist and the Hollywood blacklist and the anti-red scares. And it's like, so I just feel like it's important to set the stage because first of all, in reading the McGilligan, the Patrick uh, McGilligan book, I listened to your interview with him during the, in the lonely place episode, but reading that he says that Ray only thought of it as blacklist analogy when the French critics started accepting him and reflecting back what they got out of this film, which to me is insane. I don't know how that's possible. He's got Ward Bond, who was one of the leaders of the anti-communist witch hunts in Hollywood as your evil, he's your evil sheriff guy. As he's, I don't know if he's a sheriff. He's a rancher, evil, evil cattle baron guy leading the lynch mob with Mercedes McCambridge. You and, uh, Sterling Hayden had to, name names or do the comprom they're all compromised by the blacklist philip jordan the guy who's writing it quote is was known as one of those fronts for blacklisted writers so you think there's got to be blacklisted writers working on this script that philip jordan is taking credit for either nick ray was lying or he is truly an idiot savant 
that he could make this film as a director and not know that he was doing that. And then his film Run for Cover, which comes not very long after this with James Cagney, is also basically the same movie. It's an anti-posse, anti-lynch mob, very strong, strongly throughout with people delivering monologues about how the evil of a posse and the evil of a lynch mob. So that's one of the things that I'm really looking forward to exploring in this is how this is such a blacklist movie and also very curious to hear from the two of you if you think it's possible that Nicholas Ray could have been unaware of that. I don't think he could have been unaware. Just the scene with Turkey. So one of the – we've got Johnny Guitar and Vienna and Tom, who's played by John Carradine, and then these three croupiers. They're kind of central to Vienna's saloon. We've got, as you mentioned, Mercedes McCambridge and Ward Bond and a bunch of other character actors who are the townspeople who are very against the railroad coming into this area because they are all these cattle people. They don't want the railroads to come in and disrupt them. They don't want this new town that Vienna is basically promising. She's very much Jill from Once Upon a Time in the West where they've got, she's got this area that she knows the railroad is going to stop at and she's just waiting for progress to catch up with her. She's waiting for that railroad to come right by her door so she can open up this town and and make a lot of money. And then you've got the dancing kid. <laughs> I just love his name. And I love that the dancing kid criticizes Johnny Guitar. That's no kind of a name. But you've got the dancing kid, Bart, Corey, and Turkey as his henchmen. And at one point they catch Turkey. And I know it's a long preamble to get there, but at one point the lynch mob catches Turkey and they're like, just tell us that she did it. Just tell us that Vienna was in on this. If you tell us that Vienna was in on this, you'll go free. Everything will be fine. I mean, it is so Joseph McCarthy. It is totally what they were doing in Congress. Yeah. And it's clearly what they said to people because the people who are in this movie are the people, the survivors of the blacklists, the ones who were like Turkey. Sterling Hayden, as tough as he is, he buckled. Nicholas Ray, he buckled. He, he bent the knee to this thing. And they are like the fact that they all end up on this not quite poverty row, but the lower end side of the street making this Western almost like a garage band. It's unavoidable. They all have to, and you can feel that they all have to be feeling it. That scene is – you're talking about great greatness in this movie. That scene is one of the I, – I missed it because I didn't get to the end of the movie so many times. But that's an amazing scene. One of the other things that this movie deals with that a lot of Westerns deal with is the end of an era. It's the end of the West. It's like we're out here in the West, but there's only a matter of time before the railroad comes and brings everybody and it's all different and there won't be all this wide open space. And – Movies like The Wild Bunch deal with it very explicitly. This movie deals with it very explicitly. And it's interesting from a political standpoint when you look at what Vienna stands for, which is, I'm the new, I'm making my stake, this is new territory. And then it's like the forces of the old, the forces of the witch hunt, the the uber capitalists, the, not really even capitalists because she's a capitalist, but the monopolists. Like the, the basically, we own all of this and we want to own you too. And they're like, wait a second, you own all of this, how much is enough? I'm just over here doing this thing. And it's very political. And that politics actually seeps into the sexuality aspect of this and how sexuality and relationships are dealt with because Vienna's no angel, she's no virgin. There's, It's made 
it's implied more than once, I think, that she did something to get a lot of money. We never find out what, unless I'm wrong. I think we can, I think we can assume. Did she kill her rich husband or did she just outlive him? Whatever. At any rate, she has a bunch of money. Maybe I'm totally missing it. I have just assumed when she's talking about this that she was a prostitute. Like she left and she made money sleeping with lots of men because he's like that. How many men have you forgotten that whole thing? And that's how she made her bank. And now and she did enough of it. So she got respectability and through cash. I was assuming that it was prostitution as well, especially when she talks about how she got the tip about where the railroad was going to be. And she says that, what, she shared his confidences or something? We exchanged a few confidences. Yeah, there we go. So I was also under the assumption that she was kind of, again, like Jill from Once Upon a Time in the West, a call girl or a saloon girl or something at some other place. And she moved to this area. And that's why the people hate her as well, is that she is a tainted woman. From Albuquerque, maybe. I'm also curious about her name, Vienna. Like, as this post-war Western, post-World War II Western, I mean, her name was Vienna in the book, in the, the original paperback. But the paperback only came out a year before. It was basically, I mean, the paperback is dedicated to Joan Crawford, so I have a feeling that the the author just they were written in tandem it's like yeah and was like hey i really think that this is a vehicle for you but yeah vienna i mean at this point it's divided into what four quarters and different people own different parts of it like i've seen the third man so this is where i'm coming from with this as far as like well there's the the french quarter and this quarter and that quarter and it's like she's kind of to me, she's almost the city. She's kind of ruined like the city is right now and, and trying to like rebuild herself the way that they're trying to rebuild Vienna, the actual capital of Austria. But I don't know. It could be stretching a very, very far with something like that. No, I, I was thinking the same thing. and it's But it's also, it's not just the end of an empire. It's the beginning of an empire. Yes, it's a transition. It's Vienna's place at the center of multiple different en- empires. Yeah, I think it's, it, it can't be... Complete, like it's written by an author who must have thought about that. Yeah, they definitely changed the book huge. I was reading the paperback and it was weird that the paperback, it was a second printing and it was already a tie into the movie, but it didn't have any sort of thing on the cover that talked about, like, you know, see the new film, you know, none of that kind of stuff. It was still the old painted cover. It looked gorgeous. Thing was falling apart, unfortunately. So it was like, as I'm reading it, the pages are falling out. (laughs) It's very, very different than what we see on screen. What's really remarkable to me is that the whole book starts with Tom the drunk, who ends up being the John Carradine character, who maybe he's a drunk, but he doesn't seem like it. He seems like a pretty good guy to have on your side, and he ends up taking a bullet for her later on. The thing with Tom that I really like, and it's not even Tom thing, it's the croupier. One of the croupiers might be Eddie. When he breaks the fourth wall, or so it seems like he's breaking the fourth wall after... Johnny Guitar goes into the kitchen to get some food with Tom, and the croupier comes walking up to us, the viewers, and starts talking about how Vienna is more man than a woman, or more woman than he's ever seen kind of thing. And he's talking to us, and then you realize, no, he's not talking to us. He's actually talking to Tom and Johnny Guitar inside of the kitchen. I was just like, whoa, what's going on? And just to be clear, he says, I never thought I'd work for a woman and like it. 
this is a very subversive movie. The gender politics alone, correct me if I'm wrong, this is like either the first or one of the first Westerns with both the protagonist and the antagonist as women. This is women-fueled, women-powered movie. And it's really about a woman exercising control over her own destiny and the implication that she got there through either prostitution or marrying someone, whatever. She used her body to get there. And now she's juggling, what, two men who want her, three if you count Turkey, and she just wants to get what she wants. And we don't even know how she feels about anybody, any of these men, until what, like halfway through? A little more than halfway through? She finally... And even then, is is she just saying that? Is she just saying that to get what... Because she needs something at that moment. Is this just utilitarian? I'm not that cold-hearted, though. I prefer to think that it's sincere because, you know, it's Joan. We, we're all... We all have to have a spot, soft spot for Joan. And, and we all have to... And how can you not love Sterling Hayden? I have to admit, I could not get General Ripper's voice out of my head whenever he talks. And I know this is a thing... It's I. It, this is a personal thing. It's because I grew up with Doctor Strange. Loves. I can no longer sit back and allow communist infiltration, communist indoctrination, communist subversion, and the international communist conspiracy to sap and impurify all of our precious bodily fluids. I was just like two moments away from hearing him say that at any point during this movie, and. I think that's a cross I personally have to bear. I don't, we don't want to go down the whole Sterling Hayden rabbit hole, but I feel... Oh, but it's a great rabbit hole. It's great to talk about those because that is, to me, sort of the beginning of the later era grizzled, haunted guy that we're going to see in The Long Goodbye and also at the end of 9 to 5. I brought that up to my fiance. I was just like, by the way, this is not only the general from Dr. Strangelove... He's also the deus ex machina in 9 to 5. He's like, what? I'm like, he's the chairman of the board. He comes down and he sends Dabney Coleman to Brazil. And he's like, what? I'm like, yeah, it's him. Think about that. The end of that movie, the punishment the guy gets is a promotion. That's crazy. But this is maybe the end, right around the end of that golden boy perfect man thing the Sterling Hayden had. And so to me, it's easy to see the, di- to feel the difference because this is the more like the guy from the killing or suddenly, or any of those really great ones with him. And it's again, such a metaphor. Everything in this movie is a metaphor for something else. But Sterling Hayden was like a war hero, came out of the war, golden boy, the hero of film. And then the next thing he's a known communist, the next thing he's, the broken alcoholic in Long Goodbye. It's crazy that you can do that with almost everyone in this movie. Except Mercedes McCambridge became Pazuzu. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Obviously, we have to talk about some of the fashions and stuff in here. As you're talking about the sexuality, I mean, to have two female stars in here that are going at it and they have almost the exact same haircut both of them have this very very short haircut and so much of the time joan is wearing her trousers and her her shirt and her little neckerchief tie very very mannish dress that she has there's one moment where she wears this white dress and it is so different from everything else and i love how quickly she gets out of it it's like wearing a lantern it's like wearing a lantern 
Right. And then she it gets set on fire. The hair thing. If you remember from the book about the Patrick McGilligan book, that was a huge sticking point for Joan Crawford. She really wanted Mercedes McCambridge to have to dye her hair blonde, and she refused to. Which also we should bring up, speaking of Joan Crawford as like Vienna as the controller of Vienna, Joan Crawford was the producer of this movie. She hired Nicholas Ray, who was her lover at the time, leading up to the making of this film, but they had at least according to the book, had separated before the beginning of this film. So Nicholas Ray is his boss, is his ex-girlfriend who's the star and the powerhouse of this film, which, you know, again, I'm probably repeating, I'm repeating something from the book, but it's interesting that he had that relationship. James Mason was the producer of Bigger Than Life and Humphrey Bogart was the producer of In a Lonely Place. So he has this sort of topping from the bottom kind of quality to his to his direction where he's just sneak he somehow manages if you look at the history of directors this is not an uncommon thing like they will either have been in a relationship with someone that they end up working for or involved with them in some kind of personal way not necessarily all professional not necessarily even romantic but I, the thing to remember about directors that people not in the industry, don't understand this. They're whores. Literally. In the De Palma, if you ever saw that De Palma documentary, the one where he's like, the, is it Noah Baumbach? I forget uh, who did that. It was the, it was a documentary. Anyway, it's basically, yeah, it's like literally him just talking for 90 minutes. And one of the best things he said, and this was echoed by a lot of my friends who happen to be directors, it was just like, there is no planned career. Basically, it's whatever happens next. So directors, even then, scramble for whatever project they can get off the ground. Unless you're, like, at this point, Chris Nolan and, God, I don't even know who else. It's instructive to think that even a few years ago, Spielberg almost didn't make Lincoln because he couldn't get the money for it. Steven fucking Spielberg could not make a movie with Daniel Day-Lewis about Abraham Lincoln. And it almost went to HBO or something crazy. And... It's this weird dance that directors do with projects, with talent, with money, with producers, and it goes back forever. And when you think of someone like Nicholas Ray, who was a very, you know, he was subversive, he was very leftist, he was very free spirit, he was very free, like, free love, all of this stuff, which he later got in trouble for in the conservative 50s and everything, and, and unfortunately was alleged to have buckled under House on American Activities Committee. Although, I don't think that was ever verified, but it was implied that he did something because he wasn't blacklisted like people who did nothing it's very instructive that such a free spirit and such an an experimental filmmaker as in some a filmmaker who's willing to push himself beyond any kind of comfort zone to make really out there work which this film absolutely is and rebel without a cause is thematically but maybe not an execution that's a much more traditionally executed film a great one and also about outsiders, like this one, outsiders, subversives coming in to try to live their authentic lives and being put down by these forces, these either the system or the government or capitalism or whatever. And it's that streak that runs through all of his work, which is why I think his art really holds up. And speaking of Rebel Without a Cause, even in that one, James Dean isn't the producer, but he 
Nicholas, according to everyone who worked on it, Nicholas Ray still found a way to make himself subservient to his star in making that film, which I just think I've worked with a lot of directors. I wish more directors figured out that trick instead of the leading by dominating or manipulating from the top. I would say actually that most working directors in Hollywood don't follow that Otto Preminger kind of icon thing that they do. I found it to be more of a passive aggressive, like doling out flattery. Like it's, you can feel, the, I guess with, I haven't worked with Martin Scorsese, but I think with a lot, I've worked with a lot of legit directors who I, you know, who make things and get things done. But that, I just feel like Nicholas Ray probably had a real gift for being, giving off the air of being incredibly smart and sensitive. And if he allowed, if he's shown that on you and said, I'm, you're the star of my movie. I'm going to follow you rather than I'm going to tell you where you should go. I think it just made him, I think that's why he got such amazing performances out of not just the ones we're talking about, but like Jim, Jamie, James Cagney or Richard Burton. Or there Bogart. are unique performances that these people give. Bogart, of course. That's a fantastic that you just performance. Don't get. Yeah. Just aching. There's an achingness that I just feel like that must be the tone of the relationship he has with his stars. That it is really a love affair, something going on there. Not necessarily physicalized, but that just to work with the, that guy and be have the talent to be able to resonate with it, though that's why you get Rebel Without a, Out of Cause. This is a director that loves actors, clearly loves actors. And that in this film, that in Rebel, that in uh, all of his films, really, to get to go to Rebel for just one last moment, to get a performance out of Sal Mineo, who was not a household name at that moment. But that performance, that vulnerable, that dangerous a performance, that is a very dangerous performance. And it really did define his career moving forward for the rest of his life, better or worse. But it's an indelible performance and, and James Dean indelible performance. And a lot of this film, Johnny Guitar, could be explained by, yeah, he followed Joan Crawford. This is like looking into Joan Crawford's, looking inside her brain as like, what Western would you do, Joan? It's, it's a Western where I'm strong, except I'm feminine. I'm a damsel in distress and saved at the last second, except I'm also kick ass and, and put everyone in their place. I wear fabulous outfits with these big red beaming shining colors and I'm super butch, except when I'm wearing this flowy white dress and playing a piano and telling the men to go away. It's very what you would imagine her inner Western monologue to be. Her playing that piano in front of those red rocks. So like her saloon must be built up against the rocks and part of one of the walls basically is the mountain. And so her in that white dress in front of those red rocks, and I know they're probably not real red rocks. I'm sure that that's just all shot on a soundstage. It sounds like Joan very much didn't want to be on location and she would use body doubles in some of the longer shots and then her in front of backdrops the closer shots so i'm like okay that's fine it gives this film this odd artificiality at the same time like you get some great outdoor scenes and especially towards the end of the movie but so much of this as you guys were talking about this is stage bound no wonder that there was a 2004 musical version of this because 
we're all in one location for it feels like half the movie. This is not the act structure of this movie is pretty odd. The first 40 minutes are basically in one room. One room, the first 40 minutes of this entire movie. And yet the script is so good, you set up how many characters? All of these people and what they want. It's insane. Like screenwriters, if you ever want a crash course in how to set up a movie, maybe not stick them all in a room in 40 minutes, but look at the efficiency of how the script is written in the first act and how it sets up literally everyone. You know exactly who they are. You know exactly what they want. And you're invested. You really care about these people and what they want and even the dumb ones. Ernest Borgnine staggers in and does his stupid shit and you're like – I don't know why he's picking a fight, but I get it. He's the dude that picks fights. Okay, I get it. And Turkey's, he just wants to prove himself. And the whistling kid is over there doing this thing. And Sterling Hayden, you don't know what he's doing. And then you find out what he's doing. And even the croupiers. How many characters do you meet? It's It has to be like at least a dozen. And yet they're so in- clear. They are so clear. And they don't feel like cardboard cutouts. They don't feel like cliff notes of characters. You feel like they're real people in this weird artificial world. And I would love to talk about that more because the the artificiality of this film is very much emphasized in the production design, in the costumes, the impossible costumes. And I say impossible because she's wearing these clothes that if you wore them for five minutes in this location, they would not look like that. There's no way you could keep that dress that white for more than two minutes in, in West with blowing dust everywhere or that those red... That, that wonderful outfit with the gray top and the red kerchief or something. Oh, yeah. It's like a yellow shirt. Be- oh, yeah. And the yellow shirt, the bright yellow shirt. It's like looks like these clothes are comic book saturated. And what's so funny is like they go out of their way to make sure their eyes are covered in dirt when they come in. These couple, their faces are covered in dirt, but their outfits are amazing. Their outfits are runway ready. They look fantastic so you're always in this world that's not really the world it's a world it's this world but it's not the world you're in this dream and this is one of the reasons that this film i think the best way to describe it as a whole is it's hallucinatory it's like you're watching a hallucination and there are very few films you can say that about which is why this film is so great and so special remember the scene where it's about halfway through the movie and Sterling Hayden goes up to her and they have this conversation about, he's like, a posse is like an animal. It moves like one. It thinks like one. And she's just, okay. Okay. So we have this wide shot, which is obviously on location of her walking to this bridge, or I, I think it's her. It doesn't look like a body double. I think it's her. And then we cut to the most obvious studio rear projection you have ever seen in your life. Literally like one cut to this other cut. And it's, there is no way. This is the same location. This is so obviously a backdrop and they're in there in front of this plastic fence that they're leaning on. And it's just like, that was not the fence. This is different. And you have to believe that this was intentional. I I don't think this was just a, a way around things. They intentionally made it so heightened and impossible that you're never completely in the reality, you're always experiencing the reality, but not really buying the reality. And their performances, which are heightened, play into this too. 
because you can never really believe them because they're all so arch and the lines are so perfect and the comebacks are so tight that it's just people don't there's nobody who acts this way or speaks this way ever i never want to be like the oh movie error guy I know exactly what shot you're talking about because I notice when they're walking down that bridge, it feels like the sun is coming from one way. And then when they cut, it's actually a sunset. So the sun would actually be coming from the other way. So I'm just like, okay, I almost think you did that on purpose because you could have flipped the negative and made it so that the sun was going in the right direction. But instead, it's so jarring. Or just change the backdrop. That was intentional. Nicholas Ray's sneakiness as a director comes in because you could see it being a situation where he looks at and is, Joan isn't going to go on set and they're not going to give me a budget to do this. And, and I feel like, like this was the only is his second one with color using color. And if you watch the flying leathernecks, there's a couple of scenes where he uses super bright yellows and like he's taken his first hit off a new drug and he's, Wow, you put a big yellow in the middle of it and this starts to, something else starts to happen. And I feel like there's a lot of moments in this where he takes the cheapness and he takes what Joan Crawford is, is interested in on stage and he just says, okay, well, you can all be carried about that. I'm going to focus on colors and setting up weird dreamlike situations so that in this thing that I'm probably not going to get to edit, you're going to have to make my movie. Instead of the movie that you all think you're making. And so I think it's, I think it's intentional, but it's not intentional from the outset. It's like, these are the cards you're dealt with. As you said, a director can't make a plan. They, a director can work with what they're given. And that's where you have him doing this magical thing, which is, ex- I think, exactly what you're talking about is turn, making it dreamlike. But it's like they gave him a bunch of shitty options and he turned that into a perfect cinematic moment that we've now talked about for five minutes. Don't forget, by the way, that I call it her ketchup and mustard outfit where she's got the red tie and the yellow shirt. That's actually Turkey's clothes. That's after she comes in and and is soaked and they've been traveling and she's like, oh, Turkey's got some clothes. And yeah, so she's using his dress, which I, I thought was great. Fits are great. And can we talk about how Turkey and the dancing kid are basically James Dean and Biff from Rebel Without a Cause? Just it's like their grandparents in the old west. Yeah, that whole gang, the, just the the dynamics be, between these four guys where you've got yeah, Turkey, the young guy, you've got Bart played by Ernest Borgnine who just is always bucking against the dancing kid. I didn't realize I'm trying to remember the name of the actor that was the dancing kid. I didn't realize he was Lawrence Tierney's younger brother. I'm like, "Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. I didn't know um, that. It, yeah, I was listening Scott to the Brady commentary. Is the name. Thank you. I was listening to a commentary today and the guy was talking about that. I was like, "Oh, Okay. And apparently he got cast possibly because Nicholas Ray slept around a lot. And Nicholas Ray was sleeping with the sister-in-law of Scott Brady, I believe it was at the time. And not Tierney's wife, but somebody else, like another brother or sister or something. So, And then you've got Royal Dano as Corey, who has this hacking cough and they talk about how the, the dust isn't good. And the very first time you see the, the gang, it's all of this dust that is flying around. And again, I'm sorry to keep 
beating on this horse, their entry into Vienna's is exactly the entry of Cheyenne and his gang in Once Upon a Time in the West. You hear all the shooting outside. You hear hooting and hollering. You don't see any of that action outside. You just get them coming in to the saloon and then turning around. And then you get to see that they're faced with this entire mob. I mean, it's that part is different, but just the way that they enter into the saloon. And you're talking about how everybody is very well-defined, and I agree with you, except for, and I think this is very important to point out, the posse, the whole town, basically, you've got Mercedes McCambridge, you've got uh, Frank Ferguson as the marshal, and you've got Ward Bond as John McIvers. You could hold a gun to my head, and I would not be able to tell you anybody else that's part of that posse because they are basically faceless and just stand around in the background. They are that mob, and they're ready to become mobified. And I love that so much of this movie takes place after Mercedes McCambridge's brother, Emma, Emma's brother, is dead, and they go to this funeral – and so everybody's dressed in black for the second half of the movie. It just makes it amazing how colorful the outfits are of Vienna and everybody else versus the black of the gang that's coming to get them to the posse that's coming to get them. Now, when you say that you wouldn't recognize anyone from the posse, there is one member of the posse you would recognize because he went on to be the sheriff who shot Bonnie and Clyde. One, Denver Pyle. Denver Pyle. Okay. Yeah, I saw his name from in Dukes the of credits, Hazard. I didn't see him. Yeah. Was yeah, it, yeah, that was the Deuce of Hazard has, guy. Oh my god, he has that like the one like the Richard Dreyfus line from The Graduate. Like he pokes his head and is, "You want me to get him? I'll get him." And then <laughs> didn't realize that that was him. He looked so different. I'm used to him with that big old beard and the scraggly hair and everything. Yeah, total Uncle Jesse. Referring back to the book, supposedly the dressed in black thing was a reference to the MCA agents. He was referenced that they had a dress code. Of black suits, so take that, that Lou the, Wasserman. On the set, they referred to him. That is Lou Wasserman because, again, from the book, Nicholas Ray, Lou Wasserman was his agent who kept him safe through the blacklist times. During the time they were working together, Nicholas Ray was having a torrid affair with Louis, Lou Wasserman's wife, who wanted to leave Lou Wasserman to be with Nick Ray, and that led him to cool it with her. But talk about you got to be friggin' smooth to, to pull that one off. I think our listeners are getting a really good impression of who Nicholas Ray was and the kind of artist he was because, yeah, he's that guy. He's that guy. He's the guy who would sleep with the wife of one of the most powerful people in Hollywood while they're trying to be a film director. I, do, I don't think his middle finger could have been up higher to most of the the power structures in Hollywood for as long as he, and you can see like the filmmakers that love him later are all the ones Almodovar. Oh, Almodovar, excuse me. I always say his name wrong. Or even Scorsese. Scorsese is a huge fan of Nicholas Ray. If you, have you seen run for cover? I have not. There's a guy, there's a sweet, an actor who joins the lynch mob in that, who I swear DiCaprio based his character's look in killing the killers of the flower moon on this guy, this member of the lynch mob from run for cover. It's crazy. This is another piece. We're talking about the gang and this is 1953, right? It came out in 54. So yeah, 53, they shot it in, I'd say. Rock and roll is not 
really a thing. It's barely a thing yet. Elvis, I don't think, has has in his big contract with Capitol Records or and this movie is such a rock and roll movie. The guy Johnny Guitar and the dancing kid and the music and the guitars and even the way the gang comes in, they're like a rock band. They feel like the monkeys rolling in and they're laughing and winking at each other and it was the Blackboard Jungle, Bill Haley and the Comets or whatever they're called. And that's something about Nicholas Ray. I feel like he is smuggling the future into these films, whether it's through the queer politics, whether it's through the youth energy or the music and the rock and roll and the cultural signifiers. It's crazy. He's It's almost, it feels shamanic. His directing style feels like, I don't know what I'm doing, but this is coming through me and you're going to all have to deal with it because I'll be gone. It's super subversive and it's it, it it is meant to speak to your subconscious. The fight between Ernest Borgnine and the way that Nicholas Ray deals with it cuz first of all you were talking about how you get a sense of who Ernest Borgnine is and I feel like the most Ernest Borgnine shot I've ever seen is the look on his face when Tom, I think it is, takes his knife and he gives that smiling look of we're going to have a hell of a fight. And then they go out there, and then we have a scene with the dancing kid and Vienna just talking about Johnny Guitar. We do, and I wish they didn't cut to this fight for one. There's one shot where they cut to the fight, and I'm like, that's the fucking editor. Nicholas Ray did not give that cut. The whole thing is they walk out, they have a fight, we hear it, we have this overwrought dramatic scene, and then they come back in. Is that the first time that was done on film? Because that is such a fantastic, we don't need to see that fight. And to have it be that it's the fight starts and it's all set up for this macho moment. And then we get Vienna and the dancing kid in this film, in the scene that we really want to see. It feels like the most films would cut to the fight and we'd lose that dialogue and we'd come back in at the end of the dialogue. But instead, it puts us right in this Douglas Sirk scene while this fight is going on around outside. It's And it's good that you brought up Douglas Sirk because Douglas Sirk... There's a lot of things to talk about with this film and how it relates to Douglas Sirk because it's very much in that kind of vibe. It's been many years since I've seen The Quiet Man, but doesn't The Quiet Man end with a giant fight that takes place forever, but then it gets so boring that cutting to people talking about it while it's happening outside. I don't remember this. Something like that. It's like, I just remember they're fighting for a ridiculously long amount of time at that movie for no reason whatsoever really because what he wants to marry his sister and they decide that a fight is the way to deal with it i don't know it's not the the brother that wants to marry the sister right because i've seen that on pornhub a few times no it was john wayne wanted to marry maureen o'hara and her brother didn't like him and so they have this fight that lasts forever and then the very last shot of the film i think they come in, they're battered and bruised and bloodied, except they have their shoulders around each other. They're like, like we male bonded, and then they're demanding that she cook dinner. Just like the end of the movie Class, where Rob Lowe and Andrew McCarthy have a fight because of the because Andrew McCarthy had a, had sex with uh, Jacqueline Bissett, who was Rob Lowe's mother. I just saw it on a TV in a bar late this earlier this week, and so it's. I was going to say that is the first time I've thought of the movie Class in a very long time. That's probably a difference in, term, in terms of what hit us at a certain point in our life and stays in our brains. Don't underestimate the charms of Rob Lowe and Andrew McCarthy circa 1983. 
This is pitched so high. This is very Circean as far as just the melodrama is drips with the melodrama. Like just characters. Why do you hate him so? Just all of these like you are really in Mercedes is the person that does that the most, but everybody else is pretty much on her same page as far as like, I am going to give you a line reading that you have never had before. And here it comes. I will say this, and this is high praise. If you know me, this is high praise. If you remade this movie with a drag queen as Joan Crawford and a drag queen as Mercedes McCambridge, it could be amazing. Amazing. And literally, you could do it shot for shot, line for line. You wouldn't have to change a single line. You put Jack Plotnick or somebody as Vienna. I don't know if Jack Plotnick, he plays Evie Harris and Girls Will Be Girls and a lot of other stuff. He's He has a lot of really fantastic YouTubes. Because all of her reactions, like even when she's on fire, remember her dress got on fire and she just turns to the camera in this medium close up. She goes, Johnny! It's just like this. And it's the most acting you will see ever. It's, you don't believe it for a second. You're just like, that's Joan Crawford acting like Joan Crawford and Johnny Guitar in her medium close up. She saved up all day for this moment. She's like, and apparently everybody hated each other when they were on set. Like, there was one moment where Mercedes at Cambridge gave such a performance that the crew was applauding, and Joan was just like, mm-mm. No, no, that's not good. Just all not eyes on need my to be set. on me. Nobody yeah. wants to hear how the sausage is made, okay? That's all I'm saying. Some of your favorite movies... All you'll get up here is a bullet in the head. Some of your favorite movies have stories that if you'd been on set, you'd been like, oh, God, I can never watch this the same way. Just imagine Ward Bond is the guy leading the charge against all these people, and he's on the set. In there, that scene with Sterling Hayden, how do those guys even be in the same room together? That's amazing to me. I think you're right. I think Gus Van Zandt picked the wrong film to do a shot-for-shot remake of. Wow. Actually, that would have been amazing. Viggo Mortensen as Ster- in the Sterling Hayden role? Come on. Who could play Vienna and who could play like Mer- like Mercedes McCambridge's role? I would be curious to see that era Gina Davis, maybe. Okay. But who now? Vienna? If you did it right... Oh, who now? Oh, now. It's, it's Ben de la Creme and Jinx Monsoon. Oh my god, Jinx Monsoon would be absolutely fantastic. Can we AI them in? It's just like, let's just like shoot them on green and like put them in the movie. I would watch this movie to hell. Oh my god, that's fantastic. Please get, get them on the phone. Link that their next show. Johnny Guitar, they don't even have to write jokes. They could just do the do exactly the screenplay and have it be amazing. Yeah, I'm surprised Peach's Christ hasn't already put it on. We have dipped into the second and third act a little bit, but so much of our talk has been about this first act because this is the movie, guys. This is just It's so astonishing. Much. The first act is astonishing. Like the second and third acts are great too, but it's like you're in it, it's your 40 minutes into this. 110 minute picture literally 40 minutes in and you're still in this one location and it's i remember watching him like we're still in this fucking bar and yet i don't want to leave this is amazing this is all happening it's but it, it shouldn't work it should not work this shouldn't work at all and yet it works absolutely amazingly yeah and i love this whole thing because towards the end of this first act the ward bond character is basically like okay that's it 
everybody, you know, the bar shut down and everybody has to leave town. All of you criminals have to leave town. Yeah. He just decrees that. And the marshal's like, you can't do that. You can't just make a law right now. He's like, yes, I can. I'm doing it. I love how the marshal is so subservient to the businessman, you know, I've never heard of that, that the law follows commerce. I mean, that that just, I'm glad that's only a movie thing. It doesn't happen here in real life. But it was just, I love how he's just like, yeah, that's it. You're all out of town. And it drives the, the bank robbers, or sorry, drives the gang to then rob the bank. And then you have that whole complication, too, where it's, oh, she just happens to be at the bank the day that these guys are coming in to rob it and everybody else is at the funeral, except for these poor two guys that work at the bank. I I don't know how they got stuck with this shift, but they're there. And I love this whole thing. Again, the inside outside thing that we were talking about, as far as what you see on the inside of the bank versus what's on the outside of the bank. And I love how Johnny is just outside hanging around again. He never steps in. He doesn't solve the problem. He doesn't go, Oh, the, the bank is being robbed here. Let me, either help out or put this robbery down. And we know he's the fastest gun west of the Pecos, uh, which is a, a big surprise moment for us in the first act of this, where we find out he's he doesn't just play guitar. He's also one of the best gunfighters ever to live in the West. If you're into shooting actual guns at guns, he is the best at shooting his gun at other guns. <laughs> I read an article that was talking about that damn shot shot glass that happens. Oh, and that I love it. Shot that glass. Is, <laughs> oh my god! Talk about the sexy. That why is that so sexy? Why is that shot so fucking sexy? It's a glass spinning around, and then he picks it up with his hand. But for some reason, that's one of these super erotic shots in this film. And I think you're right. It's like something is coming from Nick Ray's alcoholic subconscious that. That's why he loves drinking so much, because of something that tells us something about his feeling about alcohol. That and also Nick Sterling Hayden turning over the glass in the scene with Ernest Borgnine, where Ernest Borgnine tries to get him drunk. Also very sexy. You know that if that shot glass falls, that all hell is going to break out. That the piece that is there between – the very limited piece that's there between the the gang and the mob – it's going to be broken. And then that shot glass eventually does fall, but falls right into Sterling Hayden's hands. And he's just like, Oh, here, you know, let me get a cigarette from you, dancing kid. And let me get a light from you, Ward Bond. And let me just give this little speech about how a cigarette, a cigarette and a, a smoke and a coffee is just the way to go. And he's got that little dainty blue teacup that he's holding. I'm like, how do your fingers, your fingers won't even fit inside of the hole for this teacup. Like, it's just this great image. And again, this blue teacup that's just like screaming its way off of the screen because all of these colors are popping so much. What was this, uh, the process we call like true color? And there were so many years where there were just like muddy, awful transfers of this film. And then finally it was given the proper transfer. And it was like, your eyes just pop out of your head with the colors in this. I think we have to take a moment to talk about the cinematographer, Harry Stradling, because he is a true Hollywood icon. I'm just going to go over some of the films Harry Stradling shot in his multi-decade career. I'll go from the latest back. 
Hello, Dolly, nominated for Academy Award. Funny Girl, nominated for Academy Award. My Fair Lady won the Academy Award. Gypsy, nominated for the Academy Award. Nominated Anti-Mame, nominated for an Academy Award. Guys and Dolls, nominated for an Academy Award. Streetcar Named Desire, nominated for Academy Award. Going back to the picture of Dorian Gray in 1945, which is a really arresting film, which as as has that big color reveal moment in it, which is just so amazing. Won the Academy Award for Picture of Dorian Gray, and he had us. Uh, he had a couple of kids. Uh, I'm sorry, one son, Harry Stradling Jr., who was an amazing cinematographer as well. Some of his credits include Little Big Man. 1776, for which he was nominated for an Academy Award. This is The Sun, The Way We Were, The Big Bus, one of my little favorites. Can't really defend it's it, but it's really good, funny. So, it's yeah, that's a great movie. so dumb. It's so dumb, but I love it. Talk about a Hollywood legend, Harry Stradling. You can't talk about the history of Hollywood without talking about people, a face in the crowd. People like Harry Stradling, who so much of Johnny Guitar is about the look. And that insane, like, not just the insane color and the color process, but just the look and the feel. And the version I saw was 133, but then I read somewhere that it's sometimes projected at 185. So I don't know what the quote-unquote real ratio is supposed to be. On Criterion Channel, I think it's 133. But still, even in that frame, it's just, it just – you just don't see many movies that just look like living dreams like this film does. And it takes an enormous amount of craft to achieve something like that. I'm looking at his filmography. So Streetcar was 51. That's black and white. Johnny Guitar is 54. Guys and Dolls, that's color. In between, he does Angel Face, Andra Cleese, and The Lion, Hans Christian Anderson, which I imagine that has to be in color. And then A Lion is in the Streets. And yet Face in the Crowd in 1957, very famously, black and white. Really effective, contrasty, hypnotically crazy black and white these guys are just getting to play with color in a way like there's something about the low like this just a cowboy picture just a joan let them do let the crazy guy let them do their like weird stuff like it feels like early beetle like the first time the beatles have a four track of we don't know what we're doing with this so we're just going to crank things up to to 10 in a way that you won't once you get more subtle and i think it's that lack of subtlety it's funny that you brought up My Fair Lady because as soon as you said that, I was like, oh, well, there's the black and white scene in that. There's the whole horse race where everyone is dressed in the black and white, very similar to what we're doing with this posse here, where you get that little bit of white around Mercedes McCambridge's neck, but she's in black otherwise, and that she cares more about vengeance than the death of her brother. It's allegedly vengeance for the death of her brother, but don't you believe it? Even if he was well alive, she would be all about getting Vienna. So when her veil flies off while they're riding off, and you see that veil on the ground, you're just like, oh, yeah, she doesn't give a shit about any of this stuff. She just cares about getting her gun off. Hey, can we talk a little bit about the gang's hideout? That opening, that wet and wonderful opening that lets them in, into their lair and allows like all of our characters to get all wet and sexy. Are you saying it's a vaginal opening in this rock face? I would say Yannick, you dirty-minded man. I'm, I'm speaking of sacred, the, the sacred iconography of the feminine, but 
Then when we get into there, it's talking about other films referencing this. When they get into the lair, I just kept thinking about all the, the deleted scenes from Heaven's Gate with the gang in their lair. There feels like a band. It feels more like a band dynamic than an outlaw dynamic. And it got that same feeling of like, these are just a bunch of mad people in a cabin. And the lo- more we can hang out with them, the better. It's a wonderful break from that interior of the lodge, but now we're back in another interior. That is pretending to have that big window with the exterior out there, which I like as well. Poor Corey, poor Royal Dano just hanging out on a bed through so much of this movie, (laughs) just coughing his lungs out. And yeah, you get that whole thing. I, I didn't realize at first when I was watching this that the way that Bart is basically being Judas and and tipping off the posse, like, oh yeah, right through here. This is how you get into this very cleverly hidden area for these guys. And I'm so curious how big the area is once they pass through that waterfall, because it feels like they ride for a long time. And then other times it feels like once you pass through that waterfall, boom, you're right there at their cabin. One of the craziest designed cabins too. It almost looks like Frank Lloyd Wright designed this thing with the the stilts and the big staircase going up. It doesn't look like something that you would have period accurate. Nicholas Ray studied with work with and studied with Frank Lloyd Wright. So that's a nice connection. It goes down to this whole rabbit hole of, okay, how did he build that? Did he bring in builder? Did he do that all himself? Did he cut the wood? Like, how did he get away with nobody knowing that this gorgeous hideaway thing is there ever? It's like when I saw the Andromeda strain and they come into this like Arizona wilderness and there's this like line. Yeah. A lot of money has gone into removing all the worker, like, the tire tracks from all the vehicles that constructed this thing. I'm like, you would have needed like hundreds of people to construct this gigantic underground virus lab or whatever. (laughs) Did you have them all killed? Like, where are these people? Like, where did you put them up? How did you do this? So yeah, I just, or you only live twice that lair in the bottom of the volcano. It's where did they get the contractors to do that? (laughs) We're specter. And we want to build this, giant lair that would cost hundreds of millions of dollars today at the bottom of this volcano with a fake glass whatever thing and just it's something i shouldn't think about but i do <laughs> maybe that's why they put up with ernest borgnine because oh, did he do it he's the only one of that group that i could see actual doing hard manual labor turkey's pretty soft royal's sick i can see ernest borgnine with blueprints pulling out blueprints okay the first stilt has to go over there. It's a load-bearing stilt. I did all of the math on this to make sure that the load-bearing stilt will... No, no, Ernie, no! He's very much a blunt instrument in this movie, which is how you use him. I mean, Ernest Borgnine, God love him. He's so good, and I just... Every time he's on screen, I don't care if he's a villain, and he's the worst of the villains here. He's almost as bad as Mercedes McCambridge, but... I love watching him. I love checking out what this guy's doing because he's making choices with his acting every single time. He's super fresh right now. Like, he's just coming off of From Here to Eternity. This is, like, his seventh film. And I think it does, like, From Here to Eternity does a lot to establish that early Borgnine character he's going to subvert with Marty. I was just going to say, how far after this was Marty? It couldn't have been that far. Because that was the movie that made him a major star and got him an Oscar, right? 
if you watch Bad Day at Black Rock, he basically does the scene with Sterling Hayden and the drinking exactly. They completely repeat the scene. That's the thing to do with him. And that's it's, it was brilliant for him to then get Marty. But he comes back and run for cover the same year, playing a very similar role to this. Another bully smiling. That smile of his. Get me Borg 9. We got to roll. Get him on the phone. He's got to smile and stab someone and be crazy. I also appreciate later on when they're questioning Sterling Hayden as far as like, why didn't you save Turkey? Yeah, because eventually, you know, I mentioned the scene of Turkey being railroaded by the, the, the lynch mob. And so, you know, just not, just say, just, just tell her she did it, kid. Just, uh, just tell us that she did it. And he finally ends up nodding. It's this very, you know, I mentioned Judas before. It's this very big moment of betrayal. It kind of feels like Peter now denying Christ. But Vienna tells him to do it. Right, that's true. She gives him permission. That's the whole thing. You'd think maybe he would have stood strong, except that she tells him to save his life, which makes the betrayal even more. She actually, for some reason, believes that this mob might spare him and just take her. Again, more of probably Joan Crawford's view of herself. The one who's willing to die for her vision, and she's so betrayed by this mob. But yeah, when they take both Turkey and her and string them both up, the death of Turkey is freaking brutal, man. So brutal. And then this whole thing about putting Vienna, you know, also has the noose around her neck, she's on this horse, and no one will crack the whip and make this horse go except for Mercedes McCambridge, Emma Small coming up here and being like, if none of you will do it, I'll do it. And she's just so angry about stuff. And then that great escape that Sterling Hayden's up there undoing the knot or takes the the rope off. And then they just ride off into the distance. I love that whole moment, but God, that death of Turkey, man, it's so funny because next week we're going to be talking about the Oxbridge incident Air, sorry, Oxbow, the Oxbow, Oxbow incident, and wow, talk about a brutal film that is really up there as well. We, you want? We should talk a little bit about the Peggy Lee. Let's theme talk song about Peggy Lee because she oh, gives yeah. me fever. <laughs> <laughs> I was very surprised that this does have the Peggy Lee song, but that it comes in at the end. Most of these movies, because we're doing, you know, this is one of many films that we're doing for Western Month, and so many of these movies start with the big ballad, you know, the 310 to Yuma, Frankie Lane, coming at you. And this one, yeah, the Victor Young score is pretty bombastic, and there are some times where I'm just like, whoa, okay, we really know that you're here, Victor. But that they save the ballad for the end. That was very interesting that they they switched it up. And also, I think this is the first time this month that we're talking about the ballad of the song and that it's a woman singer. So again, flipping it, how we've had, you know, Frankie Lane and all these other male singers doing these songs. And here you have a woman singing at the end of the movie, which breaks all these other conventions. This is where we have to wonder how much Nicholas Ray knows that he's making this quintessential feminist queer rock and roll western and how much she's just like juggling <laughs> what's he, what he's got and try having fun with color and revealing stuff that he does that there's no way he could even really be aware of i don't know 
what your takes, how, like the authorship question of this film. Because you see why the French saw this and were like, this is an auteur. This is a guy who is clearly in full control of the medium. But if you learn about him, you know he's like anything but. And yet the product is the product of some kind of perfect vision, but from a guy who couldn't possibly have had that clear a vision. That bunch of critics in France, the Cahiers de Cinema people, the, the Truffaut and all those guys, movies were for the longest time just viewed as like a low rent escapist whatever it's like a timeout at the movies was just like a basic thing to do not considered art not considered high anything and it wasn't until i think the late 50s early 60s and the french new wave started and you started seeing the french mostly spearheaded this like reassessments of people like hitchcock john ford Howard Hawks and Nicholas Ray and like viewing their work, not just as escapist entertainments that were meant for a wide audience across the, mostly the United States, but also the world, but as art itself. And it was that kind of thinking that led toward the end of the sixties when ticket sales were plummeting because of television and Hollywood was spectacularly out of touch. They were making these Westerns that they've been making forever and these big, budget musicals and these Roman epics and they were all losing money or not all of them, but most of them. And then they brought in those like that group of directors that formed the Hollywood new wave and debatably the most amazing time in Hollywood studio history. You suddenly had Michael Cimino, William Friedkin, Stanley Kubrick, John Borman, Hal Ashby, Robert Altman. Don't forget who kicked it all off. The guy from Rebel Without a Cause, Dennis Hopper. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Dennis Hopper actually was interesting because they wanted to give him the golden keys, but he was so crazy that it never worked. <laughs> His subsequent movies weren't studio movies. They were still psychotic independent films. So this is, again, but this is that sort of unconscious, like, magic of the time, the, the shamanic thing about it is like Dennis Hopper is there in Rebel Without a Cause. It defines him he did not like nicholas ray they had they fought they were both having affairs with natalie wood and yet this film put him in the place where he was this shamanic device to kick down the door and create the thing that all the other more more disciplined directors would come in and stand on the top of Dennis Hopper's success with Easy Rider the same way much more disciplined directors would come in and stand on the top of Nicholas Ray's success. Again, this is stuff that you can't – this is the stuff that I love about studying film history. The things that you couldn't have planned that are yet perfectly scripted. But at the same time, Dennis Hopper – two things. I don't want to not give him credit because he deserves credit, but – Nobody thought. Oh, no, you should. He's, I think he's a very bad director in a lot of ways. But nobody thought Easy Rider was going to be anything. Like even the people who made it didn't think it was going to be like a thing. And it ended up being, I think, like the third highest grossing movie of the year, whatever it was, something crazy. It was a huge hit. That and The Graduate a couple of years before, which was this low budget youth comedy, became the biggest hit of the year. Literally, it grossed all of these big gigantic budget movies that Hollywood was churning out and. It was at that moment with Hollywood saying, we don't know what the hell is going to play anymore. Like none of our textbooks work anymore. And that brought in this entire new 
look and vibe for Hollywood studio cinema. And you can see it in Bonnie and Clyde. You can see it in Borman's Point Blank for sure. Oh my God, what a great film. You can see it in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which of course was done before that, but it's, you can see it at, all over the Wild Bunch, any of Robert Altman's movies, like all of these movies going through the 70s. And it took really until the late 70s for all of that wonderful, we'll take a risk on this filmmaker and his crazy vision, even though we as executives know, don't get it at all, which is fantastic. Bringing it back to Nicholas Ray, many people would say the same thing about him. There is a lineage of something that bring get getting us back to Nicholas Ray that we want as an audience, as film, maybe not even as an audience, as film lovers. We want the stories of the Wellses and the Nicholas Rays, and like the people who took the wild swing, the Coppola and Apocalypse Now, or even the Coppola and One from the Heart. He only killed his own studio with that one. But that's the exciting story. But like, you don't know if you're Michael Cimino making Heaven's Gate or you're Francis Ford Coppola making Apocalypse Now when you're in the middle of it. Or William Friedkin making Sorcerer, Martin Scorsese making New York, New York, Steven Spielberg making 1941, or the movie that's been taking up my life for the last several years, John Borman making Exorcist to The Heretic. There were a number of films, and Heaven's Gate was the one that capped it all off. But because it was the most egregious, it was the worst. And it was the worst time because it came out, what, like three years, four years after Star Wars and five years after Jaws or something like that. Jaws was 75, Star Wars was 77, Heaven's Gate was like late 80, then it was pulled and then it was released in 81 at 140 minutes or something like that. This is a film that is born out of subversion. And it's just in the casting, just the fact that there are two leads and they're both women and the men in it are... Either they have characters, certainly, but they're largely supporting. And even Johnny Guitar, the titular character, doesn't do a lot. He does a few things and he saves Vienna. Not really a spoiler at one point, but the arc is not his. The climax is not his. He doesn't really have much in the way of character development. He just is. He's just this thing. It's all about Vienna. It's all about Vienna and Mercedes McCambridge and the battle of wills between these two women in the West and the crazy sexuality that's just under the surface of everything. When I'm watching this, I'm like, who do we treat? Who am I the mob to? This mob thinks that they're right. They totally think they're right in doing what they're doing. Who's the modern day Vienna for me or my life or who I see in the world who is being targeted by the mob? Because I think that's like the ultimate lesson of these, his two films about the mob is like, when the mob is attacking is when you need to stand up for them, for the person, for Turkey. Not after he's dead, not after the house, it's all burned down. You need to stand with them in the heat of the moment when everyone is, oh no, Vienna is evil. We got to get rid of her. It's the only way to save the town is to burn the witch. If you don't stand up for the witch, then you're one of the mob. And burn they do. I mean, that. <laughs> found it interesting that the footage of Vienna's place burning down has been used and reused in all kinds of mediums, especially apparently burns down on Bonanza quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, because it's a great, great footage, you know, but let's go ahead and use this. And obviously it was a whatever they were shooting with the the building burning down, 
those were not the actors going in front of it. They were going in front of a rear projection. So you got that nice clean plate of Vienna's uh, place just crumbling to the ground. Kind of like this does not answer your question, Andras, but I just wanted to inject this, this whole idea of Johnny is not our main character, even though the movie's named after Johnny Guitar. Apparently there was a TV pilot that was done five years later called Johnny Guitar, where basically Johnny, it's almost like a Route 66, Johnny goes around with his guitar and his six-shooter and solves problems for people. That lasted one episode and never picked up for series. And I was like, how misguided are you that you actually thought that Johnny Guitar was the main character? Who played Johnny Guitar in the series? Johnny Guitar in the series was William Joyce. Mm, Okay. Yeah. Who had a long, long career. He was, speaking of great films from the 70s, he was uh, the senator in The Parallax View. I don't know how you would make this into a TV show because it would have to be about Vienna or Vienna and Johnny Guitar. No one can play Vienna but Joan Crawford. Would you want to be an actor and take over that role? There's no way to to do that and succeed. They wanted Barbara Stanwyck for the Mercedes McCambridge role. I think Stanwyck, they're not going to get Stanwyck for a TV show with William Joyce. But But I could see her playing playing, uh, Vienna on the, the small screen. I'm really glad it was Mercedes McCambridge. But can you imagine if it had been Crawford and Stanwyck? It would have been a different vibe for sure. Stanwyck probably would have been more grounded. Yeah, I like – actually, I, I like this. She would have been – I feel like she would have been – she would have been more grounded and less histrionic. But the reason this film works and the reason Mercedes and Cambridge works is because from frame one, she is – you just look into her crazy eyes and just like, oh, you are gone. You are out there. You are in – some dimension of rage and sexual frustration that none of us can really like fathom right now. And you just need to get through it. And I think that's why that performance is so amazing. And so indelible. Again, one of the, if there's a top 10 movie villains list, I would absolutely put her on it. Well, she takes the man she loves. Apparently she loves the dancing kid, or at least has feelings for him. And that's the one person you get to see shot almost point blank and you get to see the bullet wound right in the center of his forehead it's very is- graphic for 1954 certainly it's extremely graphic and ecstatic he likes being penetrated by mercedes mccambridge that is clear and in the book the dancing kid is mexican is another thing that he does not like i wonder if the film is telegraphing those racial politics in any way i was looking for it That would really add to the complication because of this whole thing of she can't love the dancing kid. She can't have feelings for this guy because he's of a different race from her and would have been looked down even more. I think they should have kept that because I think that would have even complicated the, the story more and also made it a little bit harder for him to be part of society because I could see the dancing kid, like, oh, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. But I think whether he was a former robber or not, for a Mexican to join the regular white society, because you have all these white, you know, everybody that's part of that posse is white. And I think all of them are men, except for Mercedes McCambridge. Yeah, Anthony yep. Quinn as the dancing quid, as the dancing quid. Oh, yeah. No, he'll, he'll, get, uh, he'll, he'll get murdered next week on the Oxbow incident, where he's got that great little mustache 
All right, we're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's episode right after these brief messages. Bring home the all-new movie Mean Girls. Buy on digital now. New student Katie Heron is welcomed into the top of the social food chain by a group of popular girls ruled by Queen Bee Regina George in this new twist on the modern classic, Mean Girls. Buy it on digital today and get over 30 minutes of fetch bonus features. Available at participating retailers. Rated PG-13 from Paramount Pictures. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Ever read this book? A lot of people have. And they found it was one of the most vivid, powerful stories they'd ever come across. The book reviewers thought so, too. Top-notch ones like Clifton Fadiman, the expert stumper on information, please, and a noted critic. He sort of summed up the way I feel about this story when he said, I think it's sort of what you might call a masterpiece. I couldn't put the book down until I'd finished it. And right then, I... I knew more than anything that I wanted to play in a picture made from this story. Well, I was lucky enough to do so. And while it's not ethical for an actor to talk about a picture he's in, in public, that is, I'm going to do it anyway. The Oxbow Incident is the thrilling, dramatic story of the Old West and its fabulous characters as they really were. Down in Texas, where I come from, we just go out and get a man and string him up. That's right. I say stretch him. It ain't just a rustler we're after. It's a murderer. If you got any doubts, Tedley, I say let's call off this party. Take him back to judge like Davies wants. This is only slightly any of your business, my friend. Remember that? Hanging's any man's business that's around. That's just a brief idea of what you'll find in the Oxbow incident. We at the studio think it's one of the most daring and unusual pictures ever made. Jammed with emotional and dramatic impact from the start to the amazing climax. When you see it, we believe you'll agree. That's right. Like I have said many times before, we are going to be wrapping up Western Month with a look at William Wellman's The Oxbow Incident. Until then, I want to thank my co-hosts, Andras and David. So, Andras, what is the latest with you, sir? The work with the World is Wrong podcast has taken a back seat. My last thing that I did was an interview with Marilyn Moss, who wrote the book about the dark side of the pharaohs. And she got me really interested in the work of John Farrow, who sounds like a terrible person, but who also his filmography is Amazing. Talk about a haunted director like Nicholas Ray in the sense that he seems like an unconscious sort of dark shaman who was seemed like he was driven more by his personal demons than by his desire to make great films. And yet all of his films are just dark and haunting and rich. So if people want to check out that episode, they can check that out. And I did a whole season with Paul Williams, the director, who you've had on your show, Mike, and a show that I was a guest on. So that's where the world is wrong lives. I have just finished up a record. I don't know if listeners will know, but I 
for many years, I put out records and toured the country with my band. And I've been working on a record for about 10 years called Recognize, De-Escalate, and Decode, which is something that I wish someone had been able to say to Mercedes McCambridge's mob before they (laughs) destroyed the vision that Vienna was living for. And the first single for that comes out on January 19th, and I'll be coming out with singles every month until the record comes out on April 19th, 2024. People can find out all about me and my music, my website, previouslyyours.com or andrasjones.com will get you there if you want to use my name to find it. And who knows, I may be coming to a town near you soon. I'm probably looking at you, Mike, particularly. There are some, I gotta get to Michigan. some music venues here in Detroit. There are a few. I, I'm planning to come, come out in April. Maybe we can set something up. I would love it. Absolutely. And David, how about you? What's the big exciting news from you, sir? Oh, I finished my, the project I did before this last one was Queer for Fear, The History of Queer Horror, which is on Shudder. I was the lead editor and I was a producer. And by episode four, I was the co-executive producer, which was really lovely. It was executive produced by Brian Fuller of Pushing Daisies and Hannibal fame. And he is fantastic. I'm so proud of that series. And we were nominated for an Emmy, which was amazing. And my first nomination, which is cool. I can call myself an Emmy nominee now, which is lovely. We did not win, but it's a pleasure to be nominated. <laughs> so that's on Shudder. If you have Shudder, go watch Queer for Fear, History of Queer Horror. And then for the last year, for all of 2023, it's been my documentary, which is called Heretics. It's about John Borman and the making of the film Exorcist to the Heretic and how it was technically and thematically audacious and ambitious. It had the biggest budget in Warner Brothers history and was such a profound disaster that they had to recut it while it was in wide release. It is an infamous film that is some misguided people seem to think is one of the worst movies ever made. It is not. It is just not a horror movie and very strange and different. And I ended up interviewing Linda Blair, Louise Fletcher in one of her last interviews, John Borman, Rospo Pallenberg, a lot of the crew that were that are still with us, film critics, Garrett Brown, the inventor of the Steadicam, for whom this was one of his first movies. And it's a fantastic documentary. We are trying like hell to get a, a cut done, and we hope to premiere it this year at the festivals. And if you want to support, go to hereticsmovie.com. I I don't have a link up there, but I will before this goes up. Have a link on there to donate because we have been fiscally supported by a group called the Film Collaborative, which is a nonprofit out here in Los Angeles. And what you do is if you want a tax deduction, you can give money to the Film Collaborative on behalf of Heretics. You will get a tax deduction and the movie will get that funds and help us finish. And that would be great. So hereticsmovie.com, but take a look at Queer for Fear on Shudder if you have it. And uh, yeah, that's basically been my entire life for the last couple of years. Thank you again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, please check out some of the other shows that I work on. They are all available at weirdingwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. Play the guitar, play it again, 
Johnny Maybe you're cold But you're so warm inside I was always a fool For my Johnny What if you go, what if you stay, I love you, what if you're cruel, you can be kind, I know. John 